And this morning we'll be in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 5. We'll be going down through verse 11. And I just want to start by reading the passage. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. When Charles Spurgeon was six years old, he overheard his grandfather, who was also a pastor, he overheard his grandfather discussing the drinking habits of one of his church members at a local pub. And he heard his grandfather's distress upon hearing that this particular member was still going to the pub and still drinking. And Spurgeon, upon hearing his grandfather's distress, goes to his grandfather at six years old, and he says, I will kill him. A bit confused, his grandfather looked at him and asked what this six-year-old was referring to. And young Charles replied, I have been doing the Lord's work. Well, that didn't clear up the confusion for his grandfather. The confusion would be cleared up a few days later when his grandfather spoke to this church member, a guy that Spurgeon called Old Mr. Rhodes. Mr. Rhodes came to Spurgeon's grandfather, his pastor, and explained to him that he was at the pub doing what he normally does. And while at the pub, young Charles Spurgeon, at six years of age, walks up to him, points his finger at him and says, What doest thou here? For modern translation, what are you doing here? sitting with the ungodly, you, a member of the church, and break your pastor's heart? I'm ashamed of you. Six years old. Surely the young Spurgeon was upset about, you know, his grandfather being distressed. And maybe in a youthful zeal, he was just trying to defend his grandfather. However, this statement of a six-year-old has more good theology packed into it than many pastors today. At six years of age, Spurgeon recognized that to be a believer in Jesus Christ has some major implications. In the letter to the Colossians, Paul describes conversion in stark terms. Colossians 2.20, if, or better stated, since you have died. The person that you used to be before Christ, that person died. Colossians 3.3, for you have died. You know, death has some major implications. Death isn't a minor change or a minor alteration to a life. The life doesn't change at death. The life ends. The person you used to be before you came to Christ, 
Paul says that person died. And now, you are a new creature. You have been born again, or as Jesus said, you have been born from above. You have been given new life. Colossians 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, the old man died. The person you used to be died. And now you are a new person. Romans 6, you says that you have been given newness of life. Your new life is now joined to Christ. You are now united with him. Colossians 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. You have been united with the king of glory. Paul's not talking about a minor little change. You died. A new person has been resurrected and is now joined with the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's true, don't you think your life should be different? What are some of those implications of this new life? What, does it impl- what are the implications of you now being a new creature in Christ? How should your life be different? In Colossians 3, 5 through 11, you're going to see three implications of the new life in Christ. Three implications for your new life in Christ. First, you engage in right worship. That's verses 5 through 7. You engage in right worship. Second, you have Christ-honoring relationships. Christ-honoring relationships. That's verses 8 through 9. And third, you have a new identity. You have a new identity. That's verses 10 through 11. Let's begin by looking at the first implication of this new life in Christ. You engage in right worship. Look at verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. This is a command. It's an imperative. And he's commanding you to live like the old guy actually died. The old you actually died. To live like you have been united with Christ. And he commands you and says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. The reference here to the, earthly, the members of your earthly body isn't talking about physical body parts. It's referring to sinful behaviors or sinful characteristics of your old life. These are common on the earth. All those behaviors, all those sinful patterns that were part of your old life before you came to Christ, you are to consider them to be dead. More literally in the Greek, to put them to death. You are to consider them as dead. They no longer have control over you. They cannot contribute to your daily activities. They cannot be an active part of your life. They can no longer be a source of joy, comfort, pleasure, entertainment, strength. They have no part with you anymore. So what are some of these members of our earthly body? Well, Paul's going to give us a list. It's not all-inclusive. But he gives us a list of some of those behaviors that should be considered dead. Paul's focus here is not merely on outward behavior. He's going to discuss outward behavior. 
He's not simply encouraging you to go clean up your life. This is not a list of sins that you in your own strength can eradicate. Paul understood what Jesus said in Mark 7. Jesus said, sin comes from within. Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and the list goes on. Here in Colossians 3, Paul starts his list with outward manifestations of sin. You might say he starts his list with what your hands and your feet are doing. And his list ends at the heart. Where all sin begins. If you're going to deal with sin, you've got to begin where sin starts. It starts on the inside, in the heart. And that's what Paul's point is. He wants you to get to the heart level. To the root cause. So let's look at his list. He begins with immorality. Immorality refers to a broad category of sexual sin. The term refers to any kind of sexual behavior outside the confines of a marriage bed. So all forms of sexual sin. But Paul here is not telling you, again, he's not telling you to go clean up your life. Just commit to be a better person and stop doing that. Certainly, there are physical things you should do to prevent you from going into those sins. But he wants you to understand why you do what you do. Why do people commit immorality? Why do people, why do good people go and start engaging in sexual sin? What is it in the heart of sinners that leads them to defile themselves? Or to, since they're united to Christ, what is it that leads them to join Christ to that sin? Paul answers the question, looking at verse 5. Immorality comes from impurity. Impurity, you can translate this as uncleanness or filthiness. It can refer to physical behavior. And in that context, it just refers to pushing boundaries, getting as close to sin as you can without crossing over. But here Paul isn't, the context would say that he's not referring to physical behavior. This term for impurity also refers to the evil thoughts and the intentions of the mind. And because it's following after immorality, you would say these are impure thoughts. Immoral fantasies, daydreaming, thinking on sinful things. This refers to a mind that is thinking on sexual sin. If you let your mind wander and you begin to think on impure things like this, eventually those thoughts will manifest themselves in outward behavior. And if all you do is focus on what your hands and your feet are doing, you'll never solve the problem. Those, but those sinful thoughts also have a source. They stem from another sin. There's a reason they're there. Look again at verse 5. Immorality comes from impurity. Impurity comes from passion, evil desire. Passion and evil desire are two sides of the same coin. Evil desire refers to a strong longing for, you might say a lusting after, something that is forbidden. Literally desiring something that is evil. The same idea is found in Titus 2. 
when Paul said that the grace of God appeared, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Worldly desires are the desires that are common in the world. You're desiring the things of the sinful world. Things that are opposed to God. It refers to wanting and longing for things that God hates. Jesus said, to look upon a woman and to lust, to desire, is adultery. This kind of sin doesn't start and finish in your physical behavior. It begins with sinful desires, sinful thoughts. The sin is committed in the heart long before it shows up in physical behavior. When someone falls into this kind of sin, rest assured, that desire reigned in their heart long before. Evil desires, if they are not repented of and dealt with, quickly turn into passions. The term here is the same term we use to speak of the suffering of Christ. We talk about the passions of Christ. It's referring to physical suffering. Strong desires that are not alleviated result in physical suffering. The person begins to feel compelled to act on their desires. And the stronger the passion, the less the person feels like they have control over their eventual decision making. The less they feel, the more they feel like a slave. Proverbs 5 verse 22 describes this kind of passion. His own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his sin. It's describing a kind of enslavement. This is why you see people who are caught up in these kinds of sins. They say, I don't have control over this. I have to do this. Because they are being compelled by these passions. Bound and restrained by these desires. So what do they do? They have these desires. These desires become compelling passions that seem to drive and control them. And they don't want to commit the sin. We're just going to assume they're an actual believer. They don't actually want to commit the sin. So what do they do to try to alleviate the passions? Just work your way back up the list. They go to the impurity. They begin to think on and to fantasize and to daydream, hoping that will alleviate the passion, hoping that will give them some relief and they can avoid actually doing the sin. But that's just pouring gasoline on the fire. And they end up falling into the sin again. All immorality stems from evil desires that are lodged deep in the heart. But Paul's not finished. Because if all you do is tell them, change your desires, change your thought life. If I told all of you right now, don't think about a red apple. All of you are now thinking about a red apple can't do that. If you want to deal with the sin, if you want to kill the sin, you have to pluck it up by the roots. And the roots are in the heart. So Paul's not finished. Where do the evil desires come from? What is the root cause of all of these sins? Look at verse 5 again. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. The sin of the heart that leads to all of these sins 
is greed. Greed, the Greek term here is pleonexion. It refers to having a desire for more than what you are due. You might say it means to be insatiable. You're never satisfied. Enough is never enough. You always want more. All that God has given you is not enough for you. You must have more. And you will do anything. You will do anything to get what you want, including sin. Now, to be sure, I am not saying that every desire that you have is sinful. For example, if you're hungry and you want to eat something, that's not a sinful desire. When does a simple desire become greedy? If I'm so hungry that I'm rude with the person at the restaurant that I'm ordering from because they're not going fast enough for me, and I'm willing to violate the law of God so I can get what I want, I've crossed the line into greed. Or when I have actually obtained my desire and then it is taken away from me and that causes me to go and sin. That is greed. Any desire that you are willing to sin to get or to maintain is evidence of sinful greed. Greed blinds you. A greedy heart sees nothing but its own desires. Jesus said in Luke 12, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. We hear greed and we often think of money and possessions. Well, if I'm happy with the amount of money I have and the house that I have, I'm not greedy. Paul, however, says that it is a greedy heart, a heart that is never satisfied with what it has. A greedy heart is the one that pursues evil desires. It is greed that leads a person to be enslaved to their desires and to their passions. It is greed that leads a person into sinful lines of thinking. And it is greed that ultimately leads the person to go and to engage in immorality. Greed is the cause of all of it. But notice, Paul is not finished here. Paul has a really strong statement on greed. Look at the end of verse 5. Which amounts to idolatry. In Greek, there's only three words here. And if you translate it very literally, it reads this. Which is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. It is false worship. It is the worship of a false God. To desire things that God has forbidden. To desire something so much that you are willing to sin is a form of false worship. It's bowing down and worshiping a false god. Your heart, my heart, is designed for worship. That's what God designed it to do. And it is always worshiping. Whether you're at church or you're not, it is always worshiping. The question is, what or who are you worshiping? Every atheist worships. They just worship a false god. So how is greed, and by extension, every other sin in this verse, a form of idolatry? 
How is it that Paul can say this is idolatry? And does scripture even support that? Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're just going to be there a minute. Paul is describing the children of Israel as they come out of the land of Egypt. And in the first five verses, Paul explains how gracious God was to them. And he summarizes all those events. But at the end of verse 5, the narrative changes. Notice at the end of the verse 5, he says that with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. That's always a bad sign when Scripture says God is not well pleased with you. Laid low is a reference to God bringing judgment upon the nation of Israel. Okay, Paul, what's the point? Why are you telling us this? Why are you telling me that God brought judgment in the wilderness? What's that got to do with me? Well, look at verse 6. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So that you would not desire things that you are not to be desiring. That you would not be greedy. God judged them for craving, for having strong desires for evil things, for desiring things that God has not given to them, that God told them no. They were greedy. Then notice what Paul said they were guilty of. He doesn't call them greedy. Verse 7, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Do you notice there's no mention of worship there? There's no mention of statues, no mention of idols, no mention of false gods. Yet Paul accuses them of being idolaters, of worshiping a false god. And the quote that he gives, do you know where it's from? It's from Exodus 32, the story of the golden calf. And when trying to prove that these people were idolaters, he doesn't point to the fact that they bowed down and worshipped a golden calf. What does he point them to? What's the proof that they were engaged in idolatry? Look at the quote. The people sat down to eat and drink. References to their desire for food and drink. They wanted meat. They wanted all the fine foods of Egypt. Is that necessarily wrong to want that? No. But they wanted it so bad, they were grumbling and complaining against God. They wanted this so badly that they were willing to put themselves in the place of judge and tell God, you're not doing your job. The end of the quote, says, and they stood up to play. We're not going to go into the details there, but that's just a simple reference to sexual sin. They were immoral. And that's proven again in verse 8. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. That's the same term we have in Colossians 3. Yes, the children worshipped a golden calf. But Paul says their ultimate sin, their ultimate idolatry was that they were greedy. And they sought to fulfill 
their desires. They craved evil things that God says they should not have. And Paul defines that craving. He defines that greed as idolatry. Go back to Colossians 3. Greed exalts my desires to the place of God. Greed says that my desires are so important that they are now commands. They are commands for myself. They're commands for my family. Everyone must submit to what I want, including God himself. And if God does not meet my desires, if God does not give me what I want, I'm going to take it. Whether that's by sin or any other means, I'm going to get what I think I have a right to even if I have to violate God's law to do it. Greed is worshiping yourself as God. The greedy heart judges God as being uncaring and negligent in his duties as provider. Greed says, I know best. The greedy heart bows down and worships itself. And if any of the sins in verse 5 are a description and a reality in your life, your ultimate problem is not the immorality. It's not the impure thoughts. It's not even the evil desires and passions. Your ultimate problem is your false worship. You are worshiping a false god. You are worshiping the god of self. And if you're struggling with any kind of these sins, there are all sorts of programs out there that are going to tell you all the things you need to change in your behavior to fix this problem. Stop doing this, start doing that, get rid of this, go over here, get one of these, take this program, get this software, join this group. All of their efforts focus merely on changing external behavior. Is there a place to change external behavior? Certainly. And some of these programs get close to the truth. They tell the person, change your thought life. Well, we already talked about that. That's death sentence. If I tell you to stop thinking about the apple, you're going to start thinking about the apple. All of these fail. Even if the person has a modicum of success for a little while, you know what happens? They start becoming proud. Because they've been doing all this work to free themselves from this sin. And now they're being successful. And pride comes right before the fall. And that cycle just keeps on going. Falling, getting up, falling, getting up, falling, getting up. Because they're never dealing with the ultimate problem in the heart. And then some well-intentioned pastor or Christian counselor thinks that the solution to this problem is to put a little fear in them. Give them some fear. So they point them down to verse, um, verse 7. No, I think that's verse 6. Yeah, verse 6. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And they tell this sincere Christian, if you don't stop this, you're a son of disobedience, and God's wrath is coming for you. And so that poor sinner goes back to work, tired and hopeless. It's not that he's actually a son of disobedience. The problem is he's not actually dealing with the real problem. They never realize that the real problem is the false worship that's going on in the heart. But this should not describe your new life in Christ. 
Paul said in verse 8, And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, Paul had just listed a whole bunch of these sins, and he says, Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You have been liberated from these. Romans 6, you have been freed from sin. Idolatry is not fitting for a person who is joined to Christ. In the new life, you have the ability to worship rightly. A life of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. You have the ability to give right worship. Paul here is not exhorting you to put to death the deeds of the flesh through the power of the flesh. He identifies the root cause as idolatry so that you will fix that problem and begin to worship rightly, to repent of the idolatry. How do you do that? Confess it to the Lord. This is idolatry. This is sinful greed. And then do what Paul says in Colossians 3, 2. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. The idea here is not merely changing your thinking. It's a change in the direction of your life. Make Christ the object of your desires. Christ is not the end result. He's not the destination. He is the means and he is the end. He is the means to purity. Thomas Chalmers, who was a pastor in the 19th century, said that it is impossible for you in your own strength to rid your heart of its natural desires. It's impossible for you to extricate these desires. The solution, he said, was not to rid your heart of the desires, but merely to replace those desires with a stronger one, a more powerful desire. He wrote, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old desire is by the expulsive power of a new one. The way to overcome the idolatry of the heart is to begin to worship Christ in the heart. To spend your days seeking him, thinking on, dwelling on, meditating on the work and the person of Christ. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. So often, you know, we get caught up in Hebrews 12.1, laying aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and we get stuck right there. And we forget about verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. And please don't misunderstand. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't take steps in your physical life to avoid sin. I'm not telling you that. But your primary focus should be on the right worship of God. By focusing your heart and your mind on Christ. Strive to love him more every day. Wake up early in the morning, read scripture, sing hymns, pray some. As Spurgeon said, it's better to tune the fiddle before the concert. See all of life through the lens of your relationship to Christ. Does this activity bring me closer to Christ, or does it push me further away? That's the first implication of the new life. As a believer united with Christ, you engage in right worship. Second implication of the new life. You have Christ-honoring relationships. Look at verse 8. Paul says, you also, but you now also, put them all aside. And he changes the metaphor. The metaphor is no longer put them to death. Now he says, lay them aside. Texas summer is coming. We just had snowpocalypse 2021. 
And I know you're all looking forward to the hot summer this year, 100-degree weather with 90% humidity. And just imagine that was today, and you went home, and you were going to make a garden in your, in your backyard. And so you go out there, you start digging through two inches of topsoil, and then you hit the limestone, and you have to dig through that. And you spend hours out there digging and moving soil and railroad ties, moving plants. And you come back in several hours later, you're covered in sweat and you're covered in dirt. And you kind of walk in the house doing this. And you're like, I just want to take a shower. And you go to the shower, you get clean. When you get out of the shower and you dry off, do you put those same dirty clothes back on? Kind of disgusting, isn't it? That's the idea here. Take them off and leave them there. Put them all aside. The previous list was lists that related to how you worship. These sins are related to how you interact with other people. They are sins that affect your relationships. And if you live in these sins, your relationships are going to suffer. And Paul begins his list with anger. Here he's not starting with the outward manifestation of sin. He's starting on the inside. He starts with what goes on in the heart, and he says, anger. The term refers to a relatively strong sense of displeasure. You might say a mild anger. In modern parlance, we say, no, 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 I'm not angry. I'm frustrated. No, 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 I'm not angry. This, my parents used to do this to me. Frank, we're not angry with you. We're disappointed. These are just ways of describing the same thing. It's anger. And to be sure, there are times where anger is certainly justified. God has anger. He is angry with the wicked every day. That is a righteous anger. Jesus was angry when he cleansed the temple. But righteous anger is always focused on the glory of God or the well-being of someone else. Its purpose is the protection of someone else. Jesus was concerned about the protection of God's house. The gospel says, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Sinful anger that's mentioned here is always self-centered. It's always a response to us not getting what we want. James 4, verse 1, What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James identifies the source of anger. And he doesn't say you get angry because that guy cut you off. He doesn't say you get angry because the kids are just really annoying this morning. He doesn't blame other people or circumstances for anger. He says the source of anger is always our lusts. It's always our desires. Verse 8 is connected to verse 5. The same sinful idolatry of verse 5 leads to the inward sin of anger. When I get angry, it's because I have a greedy heart. I want something that has been denied or that has been taken away from me. And when we get angry, our anger is always directed toward other people. Our family, our friends, our co-workers, and sometimes, yes, even directed towards God. You didn't give me what I want. And you can see this kind of anger in people's heart, or people's behavior, excuse me, Huffing and puffing, snorting, the silent treatment. You, no one ever did this, right? You ask him, hey, what's wrong? Nothing. 
to anger. Just because it doesn't result in you exploding doesn't mean it's okay. Doesn't mean it's acceptable. And if you let this kind of anger reside in your heart too long, you know what happens? It grows. It morphs. It intensifies. Look at verse 8 again. Anger becomes what? Wrath. Wrath is not a minor displeasure. Wrath, you might say, is intense displeasure. Extreme displeasure. The same term is used in verse 6 to describe God's displeasure with sinners. God's anger there is a righteous wrath. It is always just. It is always controlled. But for sinners, this describes the anger that manifests itself in explosive outbursts. Yelling, screaming, shouting, cursing, punching walls, slamming doors, throwing things, beating up a pillow. And in all of these, whether it's the minor expressions of anger or the major, each time you act out like this, whether it's clamming up and not talking or throwing something, it's you exacting your pound of flesh. You're going to get what you want from that person. You're just going to do it in a different way. It's you making a judgment about that person. And there are actually people out there who will encourage you that if you want to deal with your anger, what you really need to do is just let it out. And they'll encourage you to go punch pillows or punching bags. Jay Adams relays the words of a secular therapist who encouraged her patients to take, on, take their anger out on pillows. Here's what she said. Pillows from sofas were used as props to be beaten, struck, pounded, thrashed, and abused by people who imagined the pillows to be whoever it was that they were mad at. Now, she watched this. This is a secular therapist. Watched these people pound on these pillows. Here's how she described it. Most of the angry gestures amounted to ritual murders. Many people had to be reminded, remember, it's only a pillow. The secular therapist figured out what Jesus said 2,000 years ago, that anger in the heart is murder. She figured out Jesus was right. When you have anger in the heart, you are committing murder in the heart. And if you don't deal with the anger and the wrath and you don't repent of that, that quickly turns into the very next word on the list, malice. Malice describes a kind of hatred, wishing evil on another person. You might say they're mean-spirited. They have a vicious attitude. Titus 3, Paul gives a good way to look at this. He says, spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's the idea. Hating. Anger and wrath turns to hatred. And you can spot this in yourself. If you find that one person, no matter what they do, they constantly offend you. The little thing just... Or you're constantly trying to find fault in that person. Always seeing the worst in them. You're not just critical. You're hateful. You have a heart that's filled with hate. And inevitably, this malice will come out. And how does it come out? Look at verse 8 again. Malice leads to slander. This is hate spewing from your mouth. You speak about others behind their back in a denigrating way. You talk to others about that person in a negative way. You cast them in a negative light. You demean their character. If that person sins, you don't go to them in love, like Matthew 18 says, and try to win them back. No, 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 no. You go find somebody else and you tell them about it. 
And of course, the slanderer always couches this in positive terms. Well, I'm just trying to help. I really care. That's why I'm telling you. Hey, have you noticed that so-and-so keeps doing this? What do you think I should do about it? Slander. At its core, it's not benevolence. It's sinful anger. It's hate. And if you don't deal with that, anger leads to wrath, back in verse 8 again. Wrath leads to malice. Malice leads to slander. Slander leads to abusive speech. When the slander, the wrath, and the anger doesn't accomplish the goal, the sinfully angry person then turns to abusive speech. You might say they become foul-mouthed. Name-calling, cursing, insults, pejoratives. This is what they do. This is where sinful anger leads. Paul adds one more sin of the mouth. Verse 9. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. The old self was a child of the devil. Jesus told the Pharisees that they were of the devil, their father, because he was a liar from the beginning. When we lie, we tell who we truly worship. Lying stems from believing that you can get a better result from your, for yourself with a lie than God can get with the truth. Lying stems from believing that you can get a better result for yourself with a lie than God can get with the truth. Lying says that I know what is best in this situation. God doesn't. Lying exalts what my desires want. Lying is placing what I want above God and above his commands and above his desires. And like anger, the liar speaks out of the abundance of his heart. Are these sins a reality in your life? Do you have a habit of engaging in slander? Are you abusive with your mouth? Do you yell and curse and scream at people? Does your family run in terror when you arrive home? You are harboring anger in your heart. Your tongue is not the problem. The anger that is in your heart is the problem. And as I mentioned before, that anger comes from greed. Wanting something that God has not given you. You don't need to change your speech. You need to repent of your greed and your anger. When you get angry, ask yourself, what is it that is making me angry? What do I want right now? What is it that I'm exalting so high that I'm willing to sin against God? And then confess that as idolatry. And repent of your anger. How do you do that? Go to the people that you've abused with your anger and confess it as a sin to them. Take it to the Lord. Confess it to Him. Confession, repentance, and forgiveness are the means by which we restore broken relationships. And then deal with the greed. How do you deal with greed? The solution to greed is gratitude. You need to fix the false worship. Instead of always wanting your desires, you begin thanking God for what he has already given you. Go home and make a list of the things that you're thankful for. Start with the people closest to you. Write a list of all the things you're thankful for. Start with your spouse. And if you can't come up with more than 20, 
you need to keep working and keep going. Your spouse, your children, your home, all the things that you have, your job, your coworkers, your boss, your church, the people in the church, name names. And then when you feel anger coming up and you feel that anger approaching, you know what you do? You confess it as greed, you confess it as idolatry, and then you begin to worship God in your heart. And you begin to pray and to thank him for every single one of those things. And the amazing part is that anger will quickly go away. And when you do this, when you're worshiping God in the heart, when you're focusing your life on Christ, you know what you'll be doing? You'll be walking in the Spirit. Galatians 5.16, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not satisfy the desires of the flesh. By repenting of these sins, by turning from them, you're going to have new relationships. Your relationships won't be characterized by anger, wrath, and malice. They'll be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's not a list of things for you to achieve. That's a list of things that God does in and through you. When you fix your heart on Christ, these are the products of living the new life. They're the products of walking in the Spirit. The new life focuses on Christ. And when you do that, you will have restored and renewed relationships. Christ-honoring relationships. So we've seen two implications of the new life. The first implication of the new life is you engage in right worship. The second implication, you have Christ-honoring relationships. The third implication of the new life is you have a new identity. Look at verse 10. He says, And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. Conversion brings about a new person, a new life. But it doesn't produce instantaneous spiritual maturity. Babies are full when they're born. They are complete, but they are not mature. Your sinful flesh will still be tempted to go back. Even though you're united to Christ, you still have unredeemed flesh, and it will be tempted to keep going back to the same old, dirty, nasty clothes that you already took off. But your new man, the new person that you are, has the ability to grow. Has the ability to mature. Paul says, he describes that as being renewed in knowledge. It's not renewed as in you're getting a new, new man. It's being renewed in a new quality. The new man who received a conversion is still there. But it's growing in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Christ, and the things of God. It's growing in Scripture. And as that truth is applied to your life, you begin to experience a new quality of life. It's a quality of life that you've never known before. You experience a freedom from sin that you once thought was impossible. Paul said in Romans 12, verse 2, he said, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Spiritual growth stems directly from your understanding and application of scriptural truth. And as you grow, as you are being renewed in the knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. That's the end of that verse. 
That final pronoun, the one who created him, is a reference to your new person. That new man, that new person, is being transformed into the image of the one who created him. Your new person is being transformed into the image of Christ. The goal of the Christian life is not just for you to follow a bunch of rules. The goal of the Christian life is that you would be more like Christ. And you get to grow in Christ-likeness as you dwell on, as you focus on, as you learn about Christ, as you grow in your love for Christ. And one day you will be like Him. You will be holy. Free, set apart from sin. Our new life is characterized by a new identity. You are not the person you used to be. You are now in Christ. You are becoming more like Christ. He becomes our identity. All those other earthly distinctions and categories that separate men in the world, all of those vanish. Look at verse 11. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. This new identity that we collectively have, if you're a believer, you have a new identity. It's in Christ. This new identity transcends all other identities, all other distinctions. The individual believer puts off the old habits of sin. The body of Christ as a collection puts off the distinctions that the world uses to separate men. Paul begins with, this, with the distinction between Greeks and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised. And the differences here could not be more severe. You would say in the world's perspective, these differences were insurmountable barriers. Barriers that included religion and race. And the two groups wanted nothing to do together. They wanted nothing to do with the other. Jews would not enter a Gentile's house. They would not eat with them. They wouldn't even eat meals that were prepared by a Greek. And if a Jew left Israel and went into a Gentile land, when they returned to Israel, heaven forbid they take some of the Gentile dust into Israel. They would shake their feet and their sandals and their clothing to get all that Gentile dust off them. They wanted nothing to do with the Greeks. And the Greeks returned that sentiment. They both despised each other. These were insurmountable barriers. And both these groups, the Jews and the Greeks, both of them looked down their noses at the next group. Verse 11, the barbarians. The term for barbarian describes those with inarticulate speech. They stuttered and murmured, or stammered, excuse me. Stuttering and stammering. To call someone a barbarian then and today is still an insult. It was used to insult those they didn't consider to be as elite as themselves. You're not as elite as I am, so you're a barbarian. But of all the people in this group, there was no group hated more and despised more than the next one. 
the Scythian. This was a warlike nomadic tribe, and they were well known for their vicious savagery in battle. Josephus said of the Scythians, they delight in murdering people and are little better than wild beasts. And the final two groups, slave and freeman, were also opposed to each other. Aristotle wrote that the slave was a living tool. These groups would never consider coming together for any kind of endeavor. They would never consider joining together for any reason or any cause. Their ethnic and religious identities were opposed to one another and formed impenetrable barriers. No Jew would ever allow someone to call him a Greek. No Greek would ever want to be called a barbarian, and no barbarian would ever want to be called a Scythian. And heaven forbid you call a free man a slave. But Paul says in this renewal, for the body of Christ who has taken on the identity of Christ, who is being transformed into the image of Christ, those barriers are now gone. Notice at the beginning of the verse, he says, there is no distinction between them. In the church, all ethnic, racial, national, economic, or any other distinction is abolished. There's no such thing as a black church, a white church, a brown church. There's not an American church, an African church, or a Chinese church. There is one church of Jesus Christ, and that's it. To divide the body of Christ by those earthly distinctions is a denial of the new birth that Paul is discussing. It is to say that the division that characterizes the world based on worldly distinctions should be present in the church. That Christ's body should be broken up and segregated according to the wisdom of men. Now, this is not to say that in the church we don't recognize and honor someone's personal heritage. This is not to say that a person ceases to have a specific ethnicity or that ethnicity is not important to their life. It certainly is. God gave you that. That is what makes you partly an individual. The key here is that this new identity in Christ supersedes all the other ones. Notice at the end of the verse, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all. Everyone who is in Christ is being transformed into his image. So on what basis are you going to divide them according to their skin color? or according to their economic class, or according to what nation they're from. Christ is all. Paul said, I desire to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. He told the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul was a Roman. And the only time he ever mentioned the fact that he was a Roman was when it might save him from getting beat again. His identity was summed up by Christ. He told the Philippians only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Later in that same letter, he said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Christ is everything. He is our identity. He's our banner, our message, our hope. 
All other identities, all other distinctions come in a, at a distant second place to our identity in Christ. I'm an American, born here, raised here, citizen, and I thank God for it. But when I look and I see in the news that there are Christians in China, China is supposed to be a foe of the United States, they're supposed to be our enemy. When you look and you see Christians in China being persecuted, beaten, and tortured for their faith in Christ, you shouldn't look at that person and say, that's my enemy. No, that is your brother or sister in Christ. That identity supersedes all. If you have been purchased by Christ, it doesn't matter what your skin color is. Christ is in all. It doesn't matter what nation you're from. It doesn't matter what language you speak. You are a brother or sister in Christ because Christ dwells in you. And he is united with you. And if Christ, the King of glory, can unite with you, then how arrogant would it be for me to say, I cannot? Revelation 7, verse 9, pictures heaven. John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. No distinctions there. No divisions there. It's a picture of what the church should be. If you're in Christ, if you've received this new life, then you have received the ability to engage in right worship, to worship God in spirit and in truth. And for you to bow down and to worship idols, including the idol of self and your desires, is unbecoming. If you're in Christ and you have this new life, then you should have Christ-honoring relationships, relationships that are not plagued by anger, malice, hatred, slander, abusive speech, or lying. Your relationships should be marked by love, kindness, humility, honesty. And finally, if you're in Christ, you have a new identity. Christ is now your identity. You are in Christ. You are joined to Christ. Christ is all and in all. And you love everyone that shares that same identity. And you reject all divisions in the church for any other reason. This passage is talking to believers, to those who know Christ. You have the ability to engage in right worship. You have the ability to have Christ-honoring relationships. You have the ability to be united in a way no one else in the world has. But if you are not a believer this morning, this doesn't refer to you. Verse 5 and verse 8 describe your life, whether you're able to see it or admit it or not. And the warning of verse 6 that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, that verse is for you. Ephesians 5, Paul says, You know this for certainty, that no immoral, impure, or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. If you don't know Christ this morning, if you have not submitted and trusted in Christ and Christ alone, you don't have more time. 
you're not guaranteed to make it home. Turn and trust him today. Repent of the idolatry and the false worship. Repent of the greed and the anger. And turn to Christ. There's no special prayers. There's no special ceremony that you have to go through. He can hear you right where you are. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you so much for your word. Father, you know all things. You know everything. You know all things about us. You know all things about this world. And in one sense, that is so comforting because we know that you know our hearts. You know that for those of us who are in Christ, we really do love you. We really do want to serve and to live a life that is honoring to you. And we are so thankful that we have been united to Christ, that he is our new identity. And Father, we just ask you to help us, to empower us to do the things that we need to do. In the midst of a world of distractions, to focus our hearts and our minds on Christ. To turn from our desires and take on the desires of Christ in your desires. These things we cannot do in our strength. They're only possible with and through you. And so we ask that you would help us to apply these things to our lives this week. And of course, we ask all of this in his name. Amen.